everyone for today this is actually my first of my secret history specials where i'll be discussing meriwether lewis with take the ring but before that i figured it would be best to discuss what the format would be since we're dealing with non-fictional characters i thought it'd be best to go through basically their whole life from birth to death and then talk about twin peaks and mark frost's secret history of twin peaks as we go through and integrate it also we record this on october 10th which happens to be indigenous people's day I know a lot of people feel strongly about using certain terms, whether it's Native Americans or Indians, and while I'll primarily be using Native Americans, I did think it was best to mention that uh, as Lewis and Clark, they did use the term Indians, and it seemed like it was a term that, as they went along, that the indigenous people deemed as a socially acceptable term, and that uh, everything that me and Take the Ring do talk about, we do talk about with the utmost respect. But with my introduction out of the way, here's Take the Ring so he can introduce himself further. Hey everybody, my name is Jeremiah. I'm the creator of the Take the Ring YouTube channel. I've got character and setting analysis and season three theory videos and interviews with uh, some authors and actors. And I uh, got a couple uh, shooting Twin Peaks shooting location documentaries up that you guys can check out if you want. And uh, I guess to start off, we'll just start off with the early days of Lewis, where he was born on August 18th of 1774 in Locust Hill of Albemarie uh, County, Virginia. And he was the son of William Lewis and Lucy Merriweather. And because they were the first to sell in the region, they actually have a strong connection to the Jeffersons. Um, sadly, uh, five years later, his father died of pneumonia. And then uh, Lucy was, had to remarry to uh, Captain John Marks the following year. And the thing is that uh, while moving uh, to and from in, into Georgia, uh, Lewis was starting to hone his skills uh, as a hunter in the great outdoors. And it was even the point where at eight years old, he could venture out in the winter, uh, the winter night no less, with his dogs to hunt. He was extremely passionate about natural history, and his mother uh, taught him to gather herbs for medicinal purposes. And uh, even around this time, he was uh, be able to befriend uh, the Cherokee Indians even though they had a contentious uh, interaction with other settlers. And it was around the 1790s that he started to observe the floral and, fla and fauna uh, throughout his land. And this is where it really starts, is that he enlisted in 1794 to quell the Whiskey Rebellion. But saw no action, but it did, uh, it did start to pique his interest to really join in and jump in the foray. He remained a volunteer uh, in the Volunteer Army and actually would subsequently meet William Clark in 1795. Is there anything that I should probably keep in mind with the finer details in terms of the type of person Meriwether Lewis was before we get into uh, Lewis and Clark? No, I think that pretty much covers it. That's what I had as well. Virginia, aristocratic family. I'd like to make a note that uh, they were slave owners. There's speculation on how Lewis felt about the institution of slavery, but... Um, I just wanted to put that out there because in the in the Mark Frost book in Twin Peaks lore, uh, he is kind of set up as a as a good guy. And I will discuss him as, you know, the tragic hero or the good guy of this story. But, you know, for historical context, there were aristocratic Virginia slave owning family like uh, Thomas Jefferson. For Even though there's a lot about Mary, Mary Weather Lewis's death, that's a huge topic of discussion. 
a thing that seems to be collectively just agreed upon with historians that there's really not much to go by with his youth because even the audiobooks I was listening to, they would just say, oh, this is all we know. And it would just pertain to his time as being a hunter and um, and like his very early childhood. Yeah. And the, the, the relationship with his mother was very strong. Like you said, his father passed away early and um, she did, from what I've read as well, that's where his love of nature and identifying plants and she was really using herbs and medicinal purposes and things for an aristocratic woman. Apparently she was extremely intelligent and very well learned in all of that stuff. And that's where his, that you would see later in the Lewis and Clark expeditions, you know, his, his love and meticulousness of, of uh, recording plants and animals and so forth. Yeah, no, but then um, Lewis, he was transferred to the chosen rifle company months later under Clark's command. And I, unfortunately, William Clark had to resign shortly after due to family slash health reasons. With uh, Lewis's ascension during that time, he did become captain on December 5th of 1800. And uh, actually also, I should point out, lieutenant in 1799. He became President Jefferson's private secretary in February of 1801. And it's probably best to kind of set up the relationship of Thomas Jefferson with Meriwether Lewis because... There is such an age difference with them that uh, I think it was more of like a father-son type of dynamic. I think you could see that even though that Lewis uh, had some idiosyncrasies, that there was that, uh, even with Stephen Ambrose's book, that undaunted courage. Like it's a quote from Jefferson and how there's like a certain tenacity that he has that would be perfect for everything to uh, really discover the country at large. Yeah, absolutely. So from what I understand, the families knew each other. I don't know if he knew him since birth, but Jefferson knew Lewis from a young man, for sure. Followed his career trajectory, for sure. And um, when Jefferson became president, that's, you know, he wanted him to be his private secretary. So Jefferson, I don't know exactly the exact chronology here, but Jefferson was about exploring the Western country. He tried to, or tried to get this expedition off the ground a couple of times. There were two or three people before Lewis. Um, I don't, I don't know if him becoming Jefferson's personal secretary was part of Jefferson's plan. Like, Oh, this guy is good with native peoples. He's good with flora and fauna identification. He's, he's obviously put in the work. You know, I don't know if that was in his mind right away when he made him secretary, but that's obviously what ultimately happened. And um, actually, because we were mentioning the uh, people who uh, sought out before Lewis and Clark, it's probably good to bring up the uh, Louisiana Purchase because this was a thing where, I mean, of course, we all learned it in elementary school. But the thing that's worth mentioning is that it was a major point of contention for the country at large because it was tremendously expensive. And I've heard different uh, how much it costs per acre. I've heard it go from like three cents per acre to like 60 cents per acre. But because of it for, I believe it was $15 million, they would have 857,000 acres spanning like well across the West, a little bit of Canada and a little bit of Mexico. But the thing is that people are so worried about what it would do for the economy that it only won by two votes. Yeah, so that was a huge factor for Jefferson at least, uh, not even going into Lewis and Clark just yet. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't. I didn't know that. So they do uh, go off. And uh, the whole thing is with, um, I should probably mention that, of course, with uh, Lewis and Clark, there is also Sacagawea. And I know uh, I know that there's different pronunciations for her, depending on who you ask. But I believe Sakaga uh, is a pretty clean tra- like translation to bird, and Wea is woman. So I just kind of stick with that pronunciation. But 
yeah her like at first there's like you know with her she uh she's also known for her distinct intensity because she gave birth like very early on i think maybe even right before the expedition and she's actually the reason why we have these records to this day because during the expedition when they're uh, like trying to find the northwest passage in particular i forget the name of the person who was manning the ship but he ended up just dropping the ball and the thing is that she actually dove in the like in the water holding her child and grabbed all these records and that's the thing is that uh is that i know that we'll get into meriwether lewis in terms of like how he wrote but that's a, that's a huge tremendous factor of like everything we could we have the basis for now absolutely that's where i i say just run keep running with it because some of this is where i i didn't spend a whole lot like i know sacagawea from being a kid i know the Louisiana purchase from being a kid like like you just said like the stuff about the expedition I learned in high school or grade school or whatever. So yeah, feel free to just keep going as far as, you know. I should probably mention is that uh, it was only like, I think 33, 34 plus people in total that were on this expedition. The only person who died was early on. I think it was a burst uh, pancreas, I believe. But the thing is that uh, in terms of the logs is that Meriwether Lewis it's kind of debated why uh, I know that he has a certain erratic nature, but he would only kind of write in his logs when he needed to or when he felt like it. And the thing is that uh, he also had a distinct vocabulary than himself apart from everyone else. So and I think even like, I don't know if reprimand is the right word, but uh, William Clark, he was not really on board with him, only just kind of writing things down when he had to. And it's probably a good time as I need to bring up is that with Lewis, it seems like he had I don't know if they called it depression at the time, and they certainly don't handle it then like they do now. But I think that it's kind of remarkable that he was able to do this whole expedition there and back 8,000 miles collectively while having to deal with that. And the thing is that along the way, he had identified well over 100 uh, animals and well over 100 uh, plants. And actually, this is a Twin Peaks uh, reference in particular, but he was actually the first one to identify Douglas firs and Ponderosa pine, which were actually like a, a pretty big crux uh, and in some capacity for Twin Peaks, whether you look at surface level or more deep down. But I thought that was a really interesting starting point to have the fir this book start off with Meriwether Lewis and that he would be the one to identify the most prominent trees in Twin Peaks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like you said, is just on the surface level or digging down a little deeper um, in the 1991 spinoff book, the Twin Peaks Access Guide to the Town. There's a huge section on the flora and fauna of the area, and that totally makes sense. And also, maybe this would be a good time to bring up be before the secret history of Twin Peaks, Meriwether Lewis is actually first mentioned in Twin Peaks lore in the Access Guide to the Town book. Page 16 there's a little quote it says in a diary entry, June 13th, 1805, Lewis wrote that he saw, quote, two mountains of a singular appearance and more like ramparts of high fortification than works of nature. This quote is 100% accurate in the Lewis and Clark journals. However, June 13th, 1805, they're actually talking about the Rocky Mountains and not the, the Bitterroot Mountains, where in the secret history, it's kind of it's supposed to be more in the Twin Peaks area. So that's a little... This little pop-up video fact there <laughs> on their expedition i don't know if this is uh before or after sakagawea because she didn't go along the whole journey she found her brother at some point and was able to reunite with them and they were able to part ways and by that point lewis and clark they were pretty good about presenting themselves to any native american slash indigenous people but it was around the rocky mountains where 
if there was a low point, this was probably it because it was around when they got to Montana and Idaho where they were relegated to eating their horses. And it gets better after that, but we really did highlight that they truly didn't realize just how arduous that path would be. And I think this is what kind of sets a precedent for Lewis onward is that once he did reach the Pacific, it was actually a very unceremonious and a very empty feeling for him because he he felt it was so different from the Atlantic and they're just like a just how arduous it was to get there and I think that he kind of knew it's it's almost like a Buzz Aldrin sort of thing because Buzz Aldrin will talk about like you know when you go back when you go to the moon what's there to really look forward to because uh on their way back home it seemed like I mean it wasn't without conflict but the one that stands out to me is that it was either Lewis he either uh tried to steal a canoe and got caught or he actually stole one and then got caught later on but it was deemed out of character by everyone on the expedition that that's just not who he is and uh that I think it's good to point out is that with um seeing the you know being on the opposite end of the country and then being out of character on the way back that this sets a precedent for how he acted once he got back from his uh discovery interesting yeah absolutely i can go along with that they do return uh from their expedition uh to st louis on september 21st 1806 and um it's probably worth mentioning is that the whole expedition cost the government thirty nine thousand dollars which, um, I mean, I know for inflation that like it's much more tremendously high for early 19th century standards. Uh, it was still like a pretty good like a use of money because now they uh, they had everything. They had like all these different plants. They had all these different uh, wildlife. They were able to map out, uh, find as much of the Northwest Passage as they possibly could just because of the route that they took. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I was going to talk about this later, but uh, for those that don't know, the Northwest Passage makes perfect sense that this is uh, something that Frost selected to to be in Twin Peaks lore, even all the way back. So the Northwest Passage was the working title for Twin Peaks, the show. So in a, another place, another time, perhaps we wouldn't be talking about Twin Peaks. We'd be talking about the show Northwest Passage. That, that was the, the title on the script of the pilot. So another kind of meta thing that ties this to Twin Peaks is that the the search for the Northwest Passage northwest passage was going to be the name of the show or at least the working title for the the pilot script before we dive into his uh career as a governor it's probably good to start to dive into the secret history because it's around the early oh, of course very early on the secret history where uh, lewis and clark they meet the nez Perce on september 20th 1805 and uh it's uh mostly about the at least this first entry uh, william clark's entry where chief twisted hair brings both him and lewis to what is to today Twin Peaks. And uh, also, I, from what I gathered, it's Whitetail Falls uh, the following day. Yeah. Um, what's interesting about the secret history and um, the most interesting thing to me is that how close it is to history, but how it just misses the mark a little bit. And I've struggled with this a little bit, but you know, I in preparing for this talk, I noticed that it seems to be a theme throughout the book that there is even recorded history is not exact. So basically the journal entry on page eight, so page eight to I believe 39 or 32, this, this first section of the book could be called the first chapter of the secret history. And this is basically the first Twin Peaks mystery starring Meriwether Lewis in the secret history lore, right? So 
you know, you've got a document that says this is an excerpt from the Lewis and Clark Journal, and then you've got uh, Special Agent TP who verifies this document in the margins. Well, if you're really looking at history and what's really in the Lewis and Clark Journal, it's correct, but it's not exact. So you've got wording is slightly different. So it starts out like the first sentence, I believe, is 100% accurate, like at a distance of one mile from the from the lodges. So mention of a lodge, which is great. I met three Indian boys where they themselves in the grass. Basically, those first several sentences are exact from the, the journal and the date is correct, September 20th. But as you keep going, certain things are abbreviated, certain things are missing, and it's tweaked a little bit. And especially the, the the last line, the last line on the first page of the uh, document excerpt is, they were a stout, handsome, and well-dressed band. Now, that line is not in this day entry at all. And in fact, I believe it's taken from an August 30th, 1804, almost a year earlier, when he's talking about the Sioux Indians. He says, the Sioux is a stout, bold-looking people, the young man handsome and well-made. So you've got stout, handsome, well-made, and then you've got this line, they were a stout, handsome, and well-dressed band. So, and this might be getting a little too geeky. I think the word band comes from Stephen Ambrose's Band of Brothers. I think this is Frost throwing a little nod to Stephen Ambrose's book, which came personally recommended to me by Mark Frost. Uh, when we talked about doing this podcast, I tweeted at Mark Frost and I said, hey, is there any books on Lewis and Clark that I should read? And he immediately retweeted and said, Stephen Ambrose, Undaunted Courage. So if you're interested, I would suggest go uh, checking out that book. Um, but this brings it up to a, a larger thing. You know, you could argue that this is fiction and liberties have been taken. You could argue, you know, even though it's supposed to be a real document and TP says it's a real document, the fact that it's not 100% correct, like that's the, just the nature of fiction, right? There's just taken liberties. I would argue that this seems to be a theme throughout. So even if he is tweaking it to to fit the page, so to speak, like, you know, we're going to we're going to have a photoshopped image of a document in here and I need to fit all this information in here and I'm going to I'm going to tweak a few things. I believe that some of this is purposeful and it is indicative of the larger themes in the book and in Twin Peaks the Return that basically people's memories of events, perception of said events and even recorded history is fluid and ultimately our reality is just subjective, I think. And even if you take out the the hundred percent historic accuracy, even if you take that out of it, you have it throughout the book the the Ed and Norma story is different. The Twin Peaks uh, Miss Twin Peaks pageant results are different. What we thought we knew about certain characters and certain things is different. You know, and Frost in interviews will dismiss this and say, "Oh well, this is our lore. We created the mythology. We created the lore. We can do with what we want." But again, I would argue that he's being a little coy. In interviews, I think that this is a major, major theme in the return, major, major theme in the return, possibly all of Twin Peaks, depending on how you want to look at it. But this idea that events aren't how you remembered it. This is a very Lynchian thing as well. You know, revent things that happen. You know, truth is subjective. What we know in recorded history is ultimately going to be up for debate as other pieces of history get unearthed. And ultimately, as we'll see how uh, Lewis ends up, this is still up for debate. So I think this is kind of, this is where you can, and I've argued before that you you really need to spend some time and take the secret history like section by section 
and you can get really geeky. You can go down the rabbit hole. Like, is this true? Is this, this says it's a real document. So like in horror movies, right. I was going to bring this up too. You know, I would argue like a horror movie, like when they quote the Bible, 99% of the time, like it's the real quote from the Bible. Like they didn't make it up to be in the movie. Like if they're quoting in movies, a lot of times when movies and books and things, when they're quoting something that is an actual historical document, and maybe this is just conjecture, anecdotally speaking, I, in my opinion, nine times out of 10, it's like, that's the actual quote. But in Mark Frost's book in Twin Peaks, it's a little different. Little words are changed. Little things are different. Did it happen this way? Did it not? Is this about our memory? Is this about perception? So I just wanted to say that going forward. Yeah, like I was saying, you were saying before, is that when you read it little by little, because I think a lot of people, at least for me, is that uh, when you first read things about Meriwether Lewis, like, oh, I just want to get to the Twin Peaks stuff. But when you revisit it, it's like 10 times more engaging. So that's a that's a thing that I get out of uh, specifically prepared for this recording where I felt myself far more invested with uh, where the ring was and kind of how that ties into it. And also learning about the history, not, you know, because um when you first read the secret history, it's just like dense with information. And then having Tammy's uh, side notes kind of like adds that little bit extra. And you're right about the thing about verified is that it's still very, there's still a certain subjectivity because even though it's an FBI agent who has access to this, verified can kind of mean a few things of like, maybe they just check some on a surface level or maybe they checked in depth. And it's kind of up to you to debate on that because there are even things in here where, uh, even core things in the Meriwether Lewis chapter, if you will, where it's uh, they actually got things wrong. Uh, and I'll, I'll save that for once we get to uh, his suicide slash assassination. I think the uh, next part is probably uh, interesting to talk about is um, it's uh, Lewis's letter to President Jefferson because uh, he talks about the ring that Twisted Hair has and uh, how Lewis was in awe of its craftsmanship. Uh, this is on in the Secret History, September twenty fifth, eighteen o five. And uh, it was one of the three strange artifacts from the quote-unquote white people at the falls. And uh, no one on the expedition knew any of these uh, people that he was referring to. And the thing is that uh, Lewis and Clark, they thought they they took it as they, they were the first white people to pass through. So it was just something that kind of just made them feel a little weary. And this is where it ties to Twin Peaks that uh, Twizzair does mention something about an owl. And then uh, Lewis's guide uh, states later about how the ring was related to a quote-unquote spirit world that the Nez Perce worshipped. I think it's something referred to as a pagan belief where animals like owls were considered divine. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of my favorite parts of the book, obviously. So chronological, in Twin Peaks chronology, taking all the books and all the shows and all the spinoffs, everything all put together. Chronologically, this is the first kind of Twin Peaks mystery and the Owl Cave Ring is right there front and center. Like you can't, uh, you can overlook some other Twin Peaks isms in this section, but I mean, that was the first thing that I kind of like gravitated to. It's like, okay, Lewis and Clark exploring the Pacific Northwest. These are quote unquote, the first white people to show up here and they run into some native peoples and get this ring, which is obviously the Owl Cave Ring, right? What's interesting in history Historically speaking, that is true. Twisted Hair said, you know, at the falls, white people lived and that they, I don't know if it was Lewis or Clark or both of them, but Frost making the comment that they believed that they were the the first white people in the area. So I was reading the Lewis and Clark journals and trying to kind of come up for some context with this. In Undaunted Courage, Ambrose says, and that business about white people living at the falls sounded suspicious. So just conjecture, just guessing, like maybe Frost's, ah, a mystery. 
I'm going to run with this. So like Stephen Ambrose, who wrote what some people think is the definitive book on Lewis and Clark, he says, oh, that sounds fishy, the white people by the falls. So I'm just going to inject myself in here based on everything that I've read. Like to me, that doesn't sound suspicious at all. I think that Frost ran with that to make it a mystery. And we are supposed to think like, oh, mysterious white people at the falls that gave him the ring. Are these lodge beings? Are these spirits? Are these whatever? But basically that comment that this sounds suspicious or whatever, like pretty much overlooks the whole history of uh, French and British fur traders in the area. Twisted Hair said, okay, at, at the falls, that's where white people live. Actually, if you go back in the the entries, like two days before or the day before, there was a first Indian chief told them this. Twisted Hair was actually the second person to mention by the falls, that's where white people live. And I'm kind of thinking like, this is just conjecture on my part. I could be totally wrong, but live is kind of like reside, which is kind of like stay. Like maybe there were, if two different people were telling the party, like, yeah, down this path by, by there, like that's where white people stay. And then that's where they said that um, the, the actual quote from Twisted Hair, or no, the first chief, the first chief told Clark, at those falls, white people lived from whom they procured white beads and brass, which women wore. So like there's white people there that they got stuff from. Like, sounds like traitors to me, right? It's like, I can see a specific part of a tribe or kids or a different group of people like, oh my God, these are the first white people I've seen. But that doesn't mean they were the first white people there ever. And then furthermore, Jefferson was aware in 1802, a guy named Alexander McKenzie published a book called Voyages Through the Continent of North America to the Frozen and the Pacific. So in 1802, before the Lewis and Clark expeditions, you have a British author who wrote the story and it's trying to, he's trying to, he strongly, the quote from the book that I read, McKinsey strongly advised the British government to establish a trading post in the Pacific Northwest for lucrative trade of sea otter pelts with the Orient. So it's cool because it's Twin Peaks and it's a mystery. And like, I'm, I'm into that. It's supposed to be like, Ooh, lodge being spirits, whatever. But like the reality is like, yeah, probably white, probably not the first white people that actually stepped foot there. Just want to throw that out there. But again, Frost is playing with history here, right? We're taking mysteries and amplifying them and trying to draw the reader in. And that's the first thing. I didn't know this till recently, but that was my first thought. Like, oh, cool, mysterious white people. And they got the ring from these people. Like, were they spirits? Were they lodge beings, you know? I took it as uh, lodge beings myself. Um, I didn't think it was quite necessarily like the fireman or the man from another place. I kind of figured that, uh, I mean, I know that they're considered omnipresent, but I think you know, because we think of like the Black Lodge in particular, where it's what that person, you know, what they see. And uh, in the, you know, in Twin Peaks, it was spanned all three seasons. We kind of look at it as like each room is different. But uh, since Mark Frost is going this far back and his viewpoint of the lodge is probably different than Lynch in some in some cases that when they go to the falls uh, and later on when they subsequently like cut through that what they see is probably totally different from the show. To come back to uh, Twisted Hair is that he does end up telling Lewis explicitly to not wear the ring for any reason. And at this point, Tammy, uh, she's relatively in the dark still about the ring. She does find it troubling. And then uh, she also does elaborate on Freemasonry. And uh, this is where she starts to talk about how uh, Jefferson, he has a fixation on the supernatural. You know, I think this is also a good part to start talking about 
the Freemasons, uh, whether it's like the what Meriwether Lewis sees versus like the Bavarian Illuminati, because there's a clashing of lodges even before even going into the expedition. The, the last part, I guess, pertained to it is that uh, Lewis, at least according to the secret history, that, of course, trying to you know map out, find the Northwest Passage and go through the Mississippi is that, you know, that's a big part of the mission. But also he does refer to it as that, that he actually, that um, Meriwether Lewis accomplished his secondary mission to an alarming degree. Yeah, absolutely. This is where it all gets super interesting, super cool for me. So basically like, and you'll see this throughout the book as you explore it. And this is like your earliest Blue Rose case or like a Blue Rose task force type thing. Like you've got a government, you know, the president is entrusting them. Of course, they've got their regular mission, but in the in the secret history, it's like Lewis also had a secret mission to explore things of the, the paranormal. And it's cool because it's kind of like a, sets up this kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark type thing. Like the good guys trying to find magic occult stuff before the Nazis do. And in the secret history, what you've got is, he establishes that uh, Jefferson and Lewis were Freemasons, uh, a secret society who Frost, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, describes as, you know, more democratic or whatever. And then you've got this clash with the the Illuminati, uh, the Bavarian Illuminati, which um, he assigns General Wilkinson and Aaron Burr as, uh, you know, followers or believers or members of the Bavarian Illuminati. So this is cool because it's it establishes, like you just said, from day one or time immemorial, you have a clash of lodges. There's literally a clash. There's a black lodge and there's a white lodge. In the secret history, you've got the Freemasons versus the Illuminati. And you've got these historical figures that are tied to these secret societies. And you'll see moving forward in your podcast series and if you're reading the book um this is the crux of alistair crowley's Moonchild. it's a duel of lodges so you you'll see this throughout the book that there's like forces of good forces of evil and that's all ultimately subjective right but you've got a secret society like the bookhouse boys so this is also the freemasons in the secret history are kind of in the tradition of of the bookhouse boys in the original show but this is this is really setting up And this completely goes over your head the first time you read it completely. I mean, me anyway, I don't know, like, I don't know about you, but you know, I'm reading, I'm like, Oh, cool. Al cave ring. Oh, cool. All right. Like, Oh, people by the falls. Okay. Oh yeah. This is neat. But it's like, once you take it all in, when you take the book in with the final dossier and the return as a whole. And if you, if you believe the books are, as I do kind of a, kind of like that backstory, that lore, right. That was in Frost's mind. Yeah, it's fascinating. Super cool. My thing is that this is where Freemasonry starts to become more prevalent. And the thing is that it's really easy and incredibly difficult to research because on one hand, it's like the most open secret of the world. And But the thing is that if you watch like one interview of someone talking about Freemasonry, it sounds like every interview. I feel like once the internet became a thing, they realized that they have to let the tiniest, like the tiniest grain of salt like out to the public. Because, uh, they, you know, from what I understand that there's serious ramifications of, like, if the Masons ever did unveil secrets to the public. Like, I feel like if you're a first degree, you suffer one particular fate. If you're at least a second degree, you suffer another grisly fate. And I believe when you're at least a 32nd degree, that's where it's like a, they burn your bowels type of thing. <laughs> so they, so it's very, it's, it is, a lot of the stuff is pretty well guarded because 
The only thing I could really find that I could confirm is that Meriwether Lewis did indeed become a Freemason, and then yeah, he got William Clark into it at least after the Core Discovery expedition was over. Yeah, that's the thing is that I feel like when Mark Frost grew up and he learned about Freemasons, it's a lot different now because I feel like it was probably less conspiratorial, like we'll say in the 70s and 80s. But now it's like you go on and it's like this rabbit hole of like, it leads to like a cult and then people just conflate that with Satanism. And it's uh, it's really hard to kind of mine through and find like a, an unbiased approach. Yeah, absolutely. I will say in my research, uh <laughs> So another thing that I will contest in the book, and I don't know if Frost did this on purpose or not, but another kind of mystery that's tied into all of this, uh, the book explicitly says, I don't have it in front of me, but Tamara Preston explicitly says that Thomas Jefferson was a Freemason. And this is not true based on my research. Basically, you can find arguments either way, okay? But... (laughs) I thought this was interesting and I took it upon myself to pursue this a little bit. So there's articles online you can find. Just Google, was Thomas Jefferson a Freemason? The argument for him being a Freemason, a lot of it comes from a Masonic Bible that came out in the early 1900s and then was reprinted several times. It's a Masonic Bible. Basically, it's, I believe it's the King James Bible, but it is... It's got an an introduction about Freemasonry and different presidents and founding fathers that were Freemasons. So I talked to some Freemasons. I have seen this Bible. I went to the Thomas Jefferson section in the Bible. Basically, his name is on a register of a Masonic meeting, and he was at a few events documented. I mean, this is all things that were documented, proven. He signed his name to a register of a meeting and he was at some different events throughout his life, like a a dedication to a lodge, that type of thing. And this Bible claims like, based on this information, yes, we, we, we believe and accept that uh, Thomas Jefferson was a Freemason. And that's where a lot of this has come from. In actuality, if you go to like Monticello.org, which is his estate, the the Thomas Jefferson estate and some other places, uh, he was pretty leery of secret societies in general. And the reality was, is that like a lot of the founding fathers and a lot of the people he ran around with were Freemasons, right? So the the Masons that I've talked to, the stuff that I have read that it's like, yes, it, it is believed that, but in actuality, probably not. In actuality, he probably was the president <laughs> that uh, he attended a lodge meeting Remember, like every town in the United States has a Masonic Lodge. Like this is not as secret as people think. But uh, if a sitting president wants to come <laughs> to a meeting, especially if they're all your friends, right? Like they're going to they're gonna let him come to the meeting. So just because he signed one register one time saying he attended one meeting in general, but again, it's contested. So maybe there's something else out there, but from the the people I've spoken to, I've looked at that Bible that a lot of these theories that he was a Mason came from, but I think in general, it's safe to say that he was not. However, in the book, Frost sets it up because that's how his, that's how he, he wants it to be in his clash. And you know what? Maybe Mark Frost, when he grew up, it probably in 1960, 1950, when the only evidence was this 
Masonic Bible. <laughs> it was probably like, oh yeah, okay, Jefferson's a Freemason. Okay, makes sense, mm-hmm. right? All his friends are his. He had cousins that were Freemasons. He had nephews that were Freemasons. Like, and I guess the whether you want to take this from Tammy's perspective or just a reader's perspective, I could be wrong, but hasn't every president, barring Gerald Ford, like every president onward, been a Freemason? I feel like that's something that I heard somewhat recently where. It's because uh, I think that the big preconception is that a third of our presence were in Freemasonry. And uh, and of course, like I was saying before, is that me growing up with it, that's where a lot of cons- conspiratorial aspects come in. So it's really hard to filter out what's fact and fiction. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the third is correct. I don't think every president, but I, I would I would say that's that sounds about right. That probably a third, especially the founding fathers era, like all of, you know, for sure. No question. So uh, that's pretty much all I got on the, the, I just thought that that was, that's another little mystery in the book. It's like, if, if someone were to go down the rabbit hole, was Thomas Jefferson a Freemason? Actually, it's contested, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so. To cycle back to Lewis, um, now that we have the Freemasonry aspect in mind, he does talk about how uh, he he refers to lights from the sky, silvery spheres, heavenly music, fire that burns but does not consume, colors unseen slash unimagined, gold bright and shining, and the secret of the color red. And the thing is that there is a lot in this that definitely pertains to Twin Peaks, but other stuff that pertains to like frost interests, because um, I think of the um, colors unseen slash unimagined. I think of um, how the color purple, I think of like, you know, I'll use the example of the movie Color Out of Space, where they they describe it as a color that is not unlike of this earth, but they make it purple as like the, as the sense of this is as close as it can be as a representation. And it makes me think of Dr. Jacoby in particular, where he, when he puts on the glasses, where uh, there's that, there's that purple filter and there's almost like that dreamlike state. And again, I know Frost. He goes through a different. Uh, he more, he goes through a more youngin aspect of um, of dreams. And Lynch, it's. I mean, I'm not not. I've never heard anything. And Lynch confirm or deny anything about Carl Young, but it just seems like they the way they perceive dreams is a lot different. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I I definitely think you're right on about the whole the color purple thing. I mean, Jacoby is um got the the you know the. The glasses one side is red one side is blue and that that is definitely a theme red and blue especially in fire walk with me and the return introduces basically introduces the the mauve the the purple aspect so you have what is called or what has been what has been called the the mob zone when cooper in episode three of the return goes to that other place and some people believe that that's what's occultists refer to as the mob zone and actually forget the occult if you want to throw all that out i think the best explanation was um john thorne uh, who writes about twin peaks talked about purple is the liminal space between red and blue like it's basically like it's the merging of that so you've got red and blue and i, I don't want to get too much into it but the the red and blue the dr jacoby thing in the dr jacoby section of the book you've got the right side and the left side of the brain you've got these two kind of colored extremes and then when purple gets introduced it's right it's like right in the middle right and it's like it's in cooper's mind or it's on you know a galaxy far far away however you want to look at it but no i think you're right on about all of that and color out of space 
fucking kicks ass yeah no that's that's a movie where i was glad that richard stanley made his return and like uh, i mean that's a whole thing for another lane but uh, i guess i'll say that before divulging back to lewis that definitely check out colorado space it's one of those great post-tax issue nick cage movies so if you want to watch something about the color purple in this more in the context we talk about that movie is like highly recommended but um, I guess the, because like I said, there's a lot about what Lewis referred to in this event. Was there anything uh, that you wanted to talk about? Because, you know, they talk about the secret of the color red, right? Think of the Black Lodge and then gold bright. Um, of course, gold is like a huge thing, especially for part eight, where, you know, it's like with the White Lodge, or at least what uh, what could be perceived as the White Lodge, where everything's black and white, but when you see some gold, you know that there's something extraordinary uh, to it. Absolutely. There's also a, mentioned later in the book i believe in the jack parsons section um talking about alchemy actually alchemy is mentioned in this section too so you'll find in the secret history which i can make an argument that is heavily influenced by what's called the occult sciences right so like alchemy is mentioned several times speaking of carl young in the jack parsons section of the book he talks about gold and alchemy and then he brings in the Jungian idea of it's more of a spiritual alchemy Whereas like ancient alchemists actually were trying to make gold out of other materials, right? And that alchemy today in a Jungian perspective is the idea of purifying your spirit, distilling things down to like the pure essence, like pure gold. Like gold is what you're striving for, but it's more of a mystical spiritual sense. And uh, yeah, that's a, that's the Jungian out, outlook on it. And that's brought up later in the book as well. I feel like there's so much we could go through just like with this part alone, but um, I think it's uh, it's best to kind of bring up is that like Lewis, he does at least quote unquote seemly return to normal. He doesn't mention his uh, experience to Clark and at that point is ready to return to St. Louis. I guess I kind of wonder like, uh, it was like I was mentioned before is that when I was discussing the real world history is that he, they were talking about the change in uh, Lewis when he reaches the end of seeing the Pacific Ocean. I wonder if this could be viewed as almost like a replacement, if you will, in terms of why he was such like a changed man on the way back or in terms of this feeling that he has they can't quite get away from. No, absolutely. I, I thought that observation was amazing that you just made. And that totally makes sense. That's the I that's I think that's the idea is in the real world. He probably got through all this stuff, got to the Pacific Ocean and then, like you said, like Buzz Aldrin going to the moon, like, what do you do after that? Like, where does your life go? You know, like Frodo in the ring, like what else is there to do? Right. Like, but in the secret history, it's this idea like, no, he got there and he went literally went to another world and came back and was changed forever. The next part is that when we go to the archivist slash Briggs's notes, he does talk about how the core discovery returns in 1807 regards heroes and that uh, they had the massive plan and animal observations that kept scientists busy for untold hours. And then their celestial and geographical observations helped map out the Western uh, United States. And it was around this point where Jefferson appointed Lewis as governor of the upper Louisiana territory, followed by two troubling years. And, uh, you know, there's a debate of whether it's like uh, alcohol or madness or being targeted by enemies. My thing is that I guess if I can use another movie reference, I think of in the, I forget which Star Trek movie, but so whichever one where Captain Kirk starts off as Admiral Kirk and the big crux of it is that for him, there's like, he's the type of person that wants to go out and explore. He'd rather have that day to day of like, he don't, he doesn't know if he'll make it to the next day, but then being at behind a desk, it's just like the most boring thing, like no, the most ill-fitting job. And I think that 
there's no one more fitting for that description than Meriwether Lewis. You know, it's like you do all this incredible stuff because the thing is that they were gone for so long. Uh, I don't know how long Jefferson thought the Odyssey would last for them, but after two and a half years, he just kind of thought, like, I don't know, maybe they're dead. And uh, so when they came back, that just made them all the more heroes uh, even further. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, it's Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Uh, he's getting older. This it's the beginning of the arc. Was there any aspects you had in mind of what this leads to in terms of you thinking if it's either a suicide or an assassination? Um, from what I've read, it could kind of go either way. I'd actually never really even considered that the concept that you just brought up—that he just once you've done the greatest thing ever, like what's the point? Or maybe he was an explorer at heart, and you know he's now in a desk job. I mean, that dynamic is is actually pretty brilliant. This stuff that I've read, it's just like he wasn't a politician. Like politicians need to like be smooth talking and wine and dining and do this and this and this. And like, but he's like, for all accounts is like a man of like absolute integrity and hard work. And like he did, he made a lot of enemies. He did. He just did. Like uh, he made a lot of enemies and he 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 upset a lot of people and he did a good job, but maybe not as good. Even if you don't make enemies, like as a politician, like you still need to, unfortunately, in society, like you need to be a schmoozer. You need to know how to talk to people. You need to bring different groups together. You need to like, and that's just basically from what I've read, like that just wasn't who he is, who he was. Those two years were difficult. <laughs> that's 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 accurate it's like the type of job where you think it would be for william clark because uh it's sort of like the what i was mentioned about the dynamic of jefferson and lewis i feel like it carries over with uh lewis and clark because with meriwether lewis uh even by william clark's own omission is that he talks about how I, i'm sure that he has a certain tenacity of his own but he talked about how he uh, had certain illnesses uh, as he went along but he just talked about just how tough his nails that meriwether lewis was throughout the whole thing of being able to fight bears, which I believe was on the way back. There's a way how he was able to handle himself in like any situation. There's a reason why Stephen Ambrose called that book Undaunted Courage, because it really did take that type of person to do it. But also, you can't really do it without having those idiosyncrasies, because when William Clark is saying that like, this person was like, you know, get through anything. I mean, maybe it's a bit of false equivalency, but I always think of like when David Bowie talked about like how to be an artist is to be dysfunctional, where there's just like a certain way of how you view the world and how that can kind of like change how you look at it, where it's like you should kind of just be happy with what you have. But, you know, there's this, this insistence that you want to do things like in a certain way. And um, yeah, so I think that while it's not necessarily art in a traditional form, that that's uh, that's kind of like the deeper rooted aspect of Meriwether Lewis and how he coexisted with the world. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with all that. This is where we can kind of start getting into the uh, like sort of the Freemasonry and the more, I guess, conspiracy notes is that Lewis, he does arrive in an in and uh, not just trace on, um, oh, strange enough, October 10th of uh, 1809. And uh, he was heading to D.C. when he was still governor. He was trying to resolve, at least according to the secret history, trying to resolve his uh, financial predicaments, but also tell Jefferson and Madison, who is now president, about a conspiracy in his territory. And how it was potentially related to General James Wilkinson and his traitorous deeds, which wouldn't actually come to fruition or at least public knowledge until 16 years later. And then Wilkinson uh, revealed the location of the core discovery uh, I believe it was to the Spaniards, uh, and they missed their trail by two days, uh, somewhere either on their way to or, or from their journey. And then um, Lewis, um, he also changed his route uh, to Washington, 
because he was fearing his papers would fall into enemy hands. And say what you will, but it says that it's verified by Tammy. And then um, James or Major James Neely, he was Lewis's guide slash protector, but was transferred by James Wilkinson. Uh, and this was completely unknown to Lewis uh, in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but again, Frost is coming up with the this uh, good versus evil or clash of lodges scenario, and he is painting Jefferson and Lewis as Freemasons, part of the secret society that, at least in the book and what he believes is uh, many of the founding fathers were freemasons many people believe that had to do with a lot of of how the the country came together and then there is um the bavarian illuminati was a secret society in germany that was created to in the 1700s as as an opposition or an alternative to freemasonry and i I can't remember exactly how long that it lasted but basically it went away but that's where you've got the modern day conspiracy theories about uh, for every conspiracy about freemasons there's a hundred more about the so-called illuminati and most people just say the illuminati to reference whatever amorphous government or behind the behind the scenes like institution of rich people that's controlling the world right so frost is playing with that a little bit there there is freemasonry there was an illuminati the illuminati its symbol and frost is correct it was an owl the seal of the bavarian illuminati was was an owl so he's running with that he's running with the owls at bohemian grove so he's he's trying to paint a picture of good versus evil secret society versus secret society yeah so you've got the that kind of stuff i don't know how it was in real life for Lewis, but it's definitely in the book and it's, it's propped up in the book and rightfully so again, right side, left side of the brain, good, evil. There is a duality in Twin Peaks and Frost is like absolutely doubling down in the book. Absolutely. There's a clash of ideals, the blue and the red, right in the left side of the brain, the more democratic secret society or institution versus this like conspiratorial with the symbol of the owl, right? The bad. So that's that's about all I can that's all I can think of really at the moment. There's a lot to go off of because uh, I mean, of course, the Bohemian Grove that's actually referenced a little later on. I believe it's around the Parsons Alistair Crowley part, and I know that um, that was a 40 foot owl statue of Moloch that was on it. I don't think he explicitly said it was Moloch, but it was just a thing they kind of put out there. And I think with Frost is that. I mean, it's not really an inaccuracy, but I think that's like, you know, stuff like that. There's this underlying notion of he wants you to do your own research to, uh, you know, he won't explicitly say it, but I think he doesn't want you to just kind of go when Tammy says verified to just kind of go along with it, because there's just a lot that you can look that, you know, reading in between the lines and trying to decode of what's really accurate versus what's not. Yeah, um, I agree 100%. And that's why when you contacted me to do this, that's what I did. Like that was my first mission. Like, okay, well, I'm going to find out what's real and what's not in this section. It can't be too hard. And it is hard. (laughs) It is is hard. Uh, Like I said, some of the documents are 99% accurate, you know, and then then they kind of diverge. And then you've got little things here and there. It's like, is, is that true? Is that not true? And I don't, I believe again, this is kind of my thesis or what or theory of the twin of the secret history book that like this is absolutely on purpose. 
I mean, here's here's the thing. And I was talking about this uh about the return too, and all of Twin Peaks, like the inconsistencies and in uh there's there's continuity errors in the first season versus the second season, and then Fire Walk with Me, and then the return and the secret history, like it's all full of continuity errors. And I think that they uh, they or Frost specifically is like a lazy writer. What Frost says is this was our mythology, we can do with it whatever we want. When people were like, well, that's not how Nadine and Ed's story went. Frost is like, I can do whatever I want. I created Twin Peaks. But he's too good of a writer for that. Like, that's a lazy, that's lazy. I'm just going to rewrite everything because I created it. I can just do whatever I want. It's like, no, he is playing with the idea of recorded history, perception, memory. This is all fluid. And our reality is all subjective. You know, tomorrow they could unearth some document somewhere that explains a whole other angle to the Lewis and Clark thing, right? That's just how history and humanity, that's how all this stuff works, right? I could just throw this in here. But speaking of Lewis, Frost mentions that uh, the Lewis and Clark party became sick and said possibly from malaria when in the in the area that becomes Twin Peaks. And this again is where I feel like he's messing with us a little bit. So option one is that he just wrote malaria because that fits on the page and he just needed to come up with something. But like any amount of research or any reading any of the accounts, the the, the journals or people that have written about this, they were not suffering from malaria. It is it's like well documented. They had become sick after eating with the Nez Perce. So there's two theories about this. either either it was an unfamiliar diet. So it's unfamiliar fish and roots and berries that these people had never eaten. And it just they all reacted weird to it because they weren't used to it and they all got sick. The other one is they hadn't eaten. That was part of the reason that Lewis and Clark split up. You remember they split up and then they, they come back together. It's because they were out of food. So these guys were starving and then they run into the Nez Perce and then they got food and they're just gorging themselves. And then they were like sick. So basically the whole thing about them being sick, like absolutely it wasn't from, I mean, at least in the journals and the, the three books that I went through to find about this, this specific time period, like no one talks about malaria. However, malaria is tied into some of the conspiracy theories of whether this was a suicide or not. Lewis, because of the time, like malaria was a common thing. Uh, Lewis had suffered from malaria and he had uh, relapses. He had a relapse on the, or I don't know if you call it relapse. I don't know. Do you, you get malaria again or does it keep coming back? Or is it once you have it, do you fight it and it goes away and comes back? But basically like this was a thing in Lewis's life. And when he left St. Louis to go to Washington, that's in the book, he was going go. He was going to go down the Missouri or down the Mississippi to New Orleans and catch a boat and hook around and go to Washington that way. From what I've read, he was going south, but um, and this is where Wilkinson ties it. It's not that he, it's like it's not like Fro in the Frost book. He's going to D.C. to warn the president about Wilkinson, and that's why he diverted off course. In reality, he was going to D.C. to take care of some financial problems and some other stuff and deliver his journals and this other stuff. And people in New Orleans, soldiers in New Orleans were getting sick because of how they were treated and what was going on at the time. And this was all under Wilkinson's command. So basically, he knew that if he went to New Orleans, like there's a bunch of like sick. I mean, there, there's the possibility of the British in the sea. This is true. Possibility of the British attacking him and taking his uh in the water once he got in the boat and went in the water he could have been sabotaged by the british that could have been one of the reasons he went through the land or that he went through tennessee instead of by boat 
But another reason is that there's hundreds of troops with the fever in New Orleans. So he stopped in Memphis and got off the boat and then they were going to make their trip cross country. Right. So I just think it's funny or cool or interesting that like malaria is a thing in the Lewis and Clark story. In the Meriwether Lewis story, malaria is a thing. It's something he got. He beat it. He got it. Oh, so he got it again in Mississippi. He had it. He had a relapse or whatever. I don't know if you call it a relapse, whatever it is. He was suffering from malaria when he got to Memphis and he stayed at Fort Pickering. He stayed there and he got over it. So again, some people, some of these conspiracy theories, whether he died or was killed, have to do with like, oh, well, he had a malaria relapse or whatever, and he was messing with his brain. And that was a contributing factor. But I mean, there's letters and, and journal entries that like, yeah, he had, he was sick when he got here and he chilled here for a few days and he got over it and he was totally healthy, totally fine of stable mind when he left to go to Nashville or go, you know, cross through the, the Natchez trace. Right. So anyway, long story short, malaria is a thing in Lewis and Clark in Meriwether Lewis story, but the soldiers were sick on the, you know, looking for the Northwest passage. They got sick because of their diet or lack thereof. And it's fairly well documented. So did Frost just write malaria in there for fun is he messing with us? Is he wanting us to do our own research? You know what I mean? So like, I, I don't know. I just, that's, I just completely lost my mind these last couple months, like going through all this stuff, you know, cause you, you can go down all these different rabbit holes and like, some of it might just be on accident. Some of it might be on purpose. You might be messing with us a little bit, you know, who knows? I, I guess if we're cycling back to the core of discovery for a bit, the two things that I was thinking of is that first is that venereal diseases were like a huge thing because it was unfortunately not really to the women's will, but when they would see like, uh, you know, upcoming like Native American slash indigenous slash Indians, um, that there would be a, I think they tried to discover it as like a partner swap, but it was really just, we want to have our way with your women. And uh, the thing is that um, I, again, I don't, I can't confirm where Meriwether Lewis stood on it, but you know, those diseases, uh, they're not very easy to treat, uh, certainly in the early 19th century. And then the other one is that, and it sounds unfathomable to this day, but uh, mercury was something that was used in case like anything came up. And the things that you think of how much mercury, how potent that is, or if you get like oh, a yeah. tiny drop on you, it's like a agonizing, painful death. And the thing is that there was so much use of mercury that I think later historians, they were able to confirm the trail based off of mercury in their stool like 200 years after the fact. So I think that while, you know, while there's stuff at the, for the Nez Perce that may have set them off, I think there was a lot of their journey throughout that two plus years that really prompted it. Oh, yeah. Sorry. So yeah, there was that, too. I did. I've, I read about uh, venereal disease being a possibility and uh, the mercury thing. Absolutely. So I guess I can't say for sure. But from what I've read, it's not malaria. <laughs> That's what that, that's what I'm saying. So I think he either threw that in there as a catch all or he's he was trying to mess with us a little bit. But no, you're you're right. You're right. I, I that might have been in the Ambrose book talking about the venereal disease, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I knew more about Meriwether Lewis as a person through the secret history. So learning about the uh, Lewis and Clark expedition, when you hear about stuff like venereal diseases, is that, you know, even though this expedition is like basically a prerequisite for like fourth grade history onward, this is some that naturally they don't bring up. So right. when you kind of think like, oh, yeah, I guess there were some the there were some more odious aspects to this journey that they just decided not test us on, uh, presumably for good reason. Right, right. Totally. Um, yeah, sorry, I, I 
threw off the the course of no no to be honest this actually really is a good way to tie it in because uh the next part i've written down uh for the secret history is um uh lewis's last night because uh when he does arrive he arrives at grinder stand and uh john grinder was away but his wife priscilla admitted him during this time lewis was armed with two pistols a rifle a lawn knife and a hatchet and uh, he ate little he appeared agitated and i believe it was behind the doors where he was talking like a lawyer whether it was like rehearsing or whether there was some kind of genuine but i believe it was priscilla that could hear him and it was odd but it was nothing too far out of the ordinary you know of course this is pertained to the more fictional aspect but he was worried about the pouch around his neck uh, referring to the ring particular and the thing that actually is confirmed the historian clay jenkinson confirmed this is that he refused to sleep in bed in favor of a pallet that would face the front door this isn't mentioned in the book but apparently he hasn't slept in a bed since at least the latter days of the core discovery so we're talking about someone who was a governor of like the upper louisiana territory wouldn't even sleep in a bed like could you imagine just like any like politician if we found out that I don't know, like Kamala Harris, like she didn't sleep in a bed like the last year and a half. That would just dumbfound countless people. Like, I don't care where your politics are. That would just confound people uh, on every end. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What's funny, I want to say that lawyer talking like a lawyer is uh, confirmed because it's in the book, right? It's in the secret history book. But I want to say that I read that some other place, too. And I just want to throw that out there that, uh, you know, Leland Palmer is a, a lawyer. That, that was my first reaction when I read it in the book that, well, this obviously is made up because he's ranting and raving and he's talking like Leland Palmer, <laughs> you know, like he's talking like a lawyer, right? So maybe he's possessed by Bob or, or you know, something like that. Oh, something I wanted to mention. So in the book and in history, he diverted off course of his original plan to get to DC and he decides to go through the Tennessee wilderness, which is... Uh, through the, what's called the Natchez Trace. This book that I have been citing mostly. So in a, a book called Bitterroot, The Life and Death of Meriwether Lewis by Patricia Tyson Stroud, she's got a great quote. She's trying to explain to people what that journey must have been like. And she quotes another book, uh, Jonathan Daniels, The Devil's Backbone, The Story of Natchez Trace, which came out in 2011. This quote, is amazing. And I flipped out when I read it, but in talking about the Natchez trace quote, doomed men and women of destiny moved along it. Doomed men and women of destiny. Like I was like, Oh, like agent Cooper and Laura Palmer, like running off into the woods. Like, like it blew my mind. I, I freaked out when I read this. I, so I highlighted it. I typed it up. I was like, I have to mention this. So the Natchez trace was a treacherous, going off into the wilderness another way that this ties the twin peaks in in my mind like basically the end of first of all you got laura palmer talking about getting lost in those woods again and the woods is like that where laura palmer meets her end and at the end of season two i mean say what you want about the return but basically cooper dies at the end of season two more or less or leaves the earth for forever like never to be never to be the same again right there's this theme of tragedy greek tragedy doomed uh doomed individuals so I've, i saw this quote in this book doomed men and women of destiny moved along it in talking about the natchez trace just 
freaked me out. It was awesome. I'm glad you uh, you brought that up because I was thinking is that because uh, at some point the big crux of at least the way that it's interpreted in the secret history is that he wore the ring at a certain point and it's like this thing that just like has messed with his mind in some way. And, you know, when he has the pouch around his neck, that's like another aspect behind it. And it makes me think of what do you think of this scene relative to in Fire Walk with me when Laura has her dream? When the arm like gives her like he he offers the ring and uh, Cooper has a very concerned look saying don't take the ring Laura, is there anything that you think of relative to that scene that coincides with Meriwether Lewis wearing it? And unlike Laura, where she has that agency for him, it's like almost like a curse of sorts. Yeah. So basically, the this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier that Chief Twisted Hair tells him that you uh, never put it on. So, and then later, uh, I should have heeded his warning. So Chief Twisted Hair gives him, don't put it on. It's kind of like, don't take the ring and fire walk with me. And then, you know, I should have heeded his warning, right? Implying that he did put it on at some point. You know, the ring is an ambiguous thing. It's obviously where the name of my channel comes from. Because he says, don't take the ring. And I'm like, no, take the ring go to the black lodge. That's what this is all about. You go and, you know, go crazy. So John Thorne just talked about this recently that, you know, in the original fire walk with me script, it's straight up a bad thing. Cooper says, don't take it. Don't take it. Don't take it. And then by the time fire walk with me actually gets done and you've got the angel and all that stuff, like John Thorne sees it more as like, she is able to take the power of her oppressors. Right. And this is what, this is why Bob can't kill her. Right. Because she's basically, you know, Thorne didn't say this. I think this like basically she's she doesn't even know in, instinctively. She doesn't even know really what it means, but she in effect is sending her soul to the Black Lodge. It's like a, it's a like she's dead. It's a tragedy, but it's like a safe place. Like Bob cannot take her soul because it's she put the ring on and she died and she's in the red room. But uh, and Thorne says this, too, and I agree 100 percent like. In all intents and purposes, it's a bad thing. Like a regular regular folk should not mess with the owl cave ring. So Chet Desmond did and disappeared, right? And fire walk with me. You know, it's it's a little bit in the return. It kind of shows up and goes away. And that Ray Monroe dies with it on and you see his spirit or soul or something go to the the red room. You know, I I think it was good for Laura Palmer in that specific instance, in that specific case. All right. But like I said gun to my head is it good or bad like probably a bad thing you don't want to send your soul to another dimension if you don't have to <laughs> right so uh, yeah oh yeah no it's something i mentioned my laura palmer episode is that uh you know people seem to have uh have their own opinions on like what the color red means or what the color blue means or you know they look at those like those are core colors that uh lynch uses throughout his filmography but the thing is that green it seems like in the 90s that was a thing that he was more like attached to in certain cases because uh, you know i think of the color of the ring because even like uh, the man from another place says like this is a formica table green is its color and maybe like i'm learning a little too far into it but i also think of like earlier in the movie when uh, we got the introduction of philip jeffries where it's like predominantly green because of like the uh of like the floor at the fbi headquarters and things that philip jeffries He's not an evil or malevolent character, but the way that there's that buildup and like the way that shows it, it makes it seem like there's something really formidable and nefarious. And of course, you know, people can have their opinions once you look through Firewalking in season three, but even stuff like um, like Lost Highway, 
where uh, when they go to Pete's or, or no Andy's house, and though like everything is predominantly green, it's like this very oppressive uh, environment. There's a lot of evil that dwells within that that specific home. It's something that seemed like he was really attached to in the '90s, and of course, uh, because the return is uh, in 2017, that aspect does carry over. So yeah, I, I think of less of the symbology. Actually, I do think of the symbol. It does resemble like the Freemason symbol to a certain degree. And uh, I always kind of wondered if that was a more of a Mark Frost thing, because uh, of course the ring wasn't in the original series, but Owl Cave was. And I think of how much, uh, how much Frost really had influence on that and then built off of it more so with the secret history. Yeah. Um, the symbol on the ring is basically the Owl Cave symbol, like the little owl, like then even that's debated like is it two mountains with an entrance in between is it actually like the square with the wings so it's like the bird frost has said on twitter just even recently that it's rooted in the uh the odal rune a, a rune which unfortunately has been kind of taken over by neo-fascists the the odal rune but whatever so it's it's an it's an alternate kind of an alternate take on uh the odal rune and it does resemble an owl it also kind of looks like two mountains with a with an, an opening in between between two peaks between two worlds like there's a million different ways you can read it it's basically the same symbol with a little kind of like a little extra line like a tail coming off of it so yeah but frost didn't have anything to do with fire walk with me so the ring is completely a, a lynch creation and and or uh, robert ingles creation so frost was charged with working in any lore any fire walk with me stuff into back into the the twin peak story for the return so that's what i was actually shocked when i like the first chapter of the book has the owl cave ring in it i'm like that's not even mark frost thing yeah. and it's here so it's like okay cool like it, it's definitely working it in. I think for me, the reason why I have this like uh, almost hang up for lack of a better term of like he created the symbol for Owl Cave is that, you know, reference Firewalk with me is that Desmond and Sam Stanley, they're very briefly referenced in the secret history, but they basically come and go in the same sentence. So I was kind of thought that uh, with Frost that more so that um, that but there's some about that symbology that he's like really tra transfixed on. And of course, like you said, um, Lynch, he definitely, you know, he took the ring and ran with it. And of course, he really set the mythos with that in particular. Yeah. So it could be a couple of different things. It is my understanding, according to David Bushman's conversations with Mark Frost and other things that he and other places he's talked about it, that the majority of the secret history was written after they wrote the script. So they wrote the script, or at least the pilot of the script. It got greenlit. I think they sat down and wrote the rest. And then Lynch had a year, a year and a half to go shoot it. Frost was involved in some of that. He was on set sometimes. He says he was involved in the editing process a little bit, or more than a little bit, but he, he wouldn't refuse to get specific about it. The easiest way to explain it is they both wrote it. Frost went off to write this book while Lynch was shooting it or in pre-production or whatever. So I think because the ring is in the return quite a bit, I mean, quite a bit, it's 18 hours long. It's probably only in it for <laughs> 30 seconds, but uh, it was in it. So he said, okay, cool. Well, I got to use this, but Chet Desmond and Sam Stanley are not in it at all. They're not even referenced in it at all. They're not, they're not mentioned in it at all. So I think when he wrote the book, he's like, well, I should probably mention these guys. And then he did for a second, but I think that he 
Well, and and he co-wrote the return. Like he wrote the return with Lynch, and like Firewalk with Me is absolutely baked into you have to. In my opinion, you have to know that story to under to even like kind of comprehend what is going on. I mean, I'm sure there's people that watched the return and never saw, but like Philip Jeffries, The Ring, Laura being the one. That's all Firewalk with Me. So I think that Frost had to work all that stuff in, and I think in the book. The thing is, Fire Walk With Me really is only just a kind of short thing. There's really only like, what, a handful of pages about Laura Palmer in The Secret History, right? Yeah, it's like way near the end. Yeah, it's a little more about, I think, through the lens of Jacoby in a lot of cases. At least when I did my episode, I was looking through that lens. So I think that's, yeah. uh, take that as you will. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, sorry, I forget how we got on this. <laughs> oh, that's fine. But were there any other final thoughts about like the ring relative to how Meriwether Lewis and uh, more so the people who take it subsequently? Is there anything you kind of factor in with that? No, I think I think I said it correctly. Like it's ambiguous. It's good. It's good and evil or indifferent. It's an, another worldly device, right? Uh, an otherworldly device. Yeah, but I wouldn't take it. <laughs> like, I think it's bad for the most part. Maybe not for Laura Palmer and her specific situation in that scenario. Obviously, uh, spoiler alert, David Dale Cooper sends his doppelganger back to the Black Lodge with the ring. So that's good, right? But in general, if you're Joe Schmo on the street and there's <laughs> someone gives it to you and says, don't put this on, I would say not to put it on. And I think that's what's set up in the book is that he put it on at some point or touches it. I mean, it's kind of a Lord of the Rings thing here. Like it just... It's a magnet of otherworldly forces, too. I mean, it is kind of a Lord of the Rings thing. I think that if you have it or wear it or whatever, like lodge beings or other forces will be drawn to it. Like, and if obviously in the return, it's set up for sure. Hinted at in Firewalk with me, set up in the return for sure. If you die with the ring on your finger, then your soul or spirit or whatever will go to the Black Lodge or the Red Room or Limbo or whatever you want. So, you know, he he leaves or he, he heads off in the tennis, Tennessee wilderness along the Nach- Natchez Trace with uh, Major James Neely. And um, they split up and he ends up at a place called Grinder Stand and um, he's dead the next morning. And uh, history and the Mark Frost book both play with the idea, was it murder or suicide? However you think about that. In the case of um, Meriwether Lewis, is that uh, when he does go to bed, though, he does have his pistols at his side, and uh, his servants are in the barn. And I should probably point out is that uh, during the core discovery, Meriwether Lewis, his marksmanship is, uh, in with rifles was second to none. Like, he was among the best, if not the best, during that whole group collectively. But the thing is that, uh, and this is where the people who kind of talk about being suicide, like the historian Clay Jenkinson, is that, you know, it's like it's one thing to be able to use a rifle, but like with pistols, there's a different uh, skill set uh, in a different way. And uh, and if, if for people who do subscribe to the idea of it being suicide, that there's a certain change of like when you kind of like point it at you. And, and again, the, I'm just trying to make a case of like, you know, where the people who deem it as suicide, where they come from, because it depends on also your knowledge of guns and your experience with it as well. The thing is that that's worth mentioning is that with suicide, it was considered to be like, uh, I think at the time, you would aim at your head and your abdomen at the same time. And it seemed like to a certain extent that that lined up, depending on how you look at it, because the way it's depicted in the book is that it seems like he shot himself in the head first. And uh, according to uh, Clay Jenkinson, he said that 
it was to the point where definitely skull and I think even brain was exposed. Yeah. And uh, there were just so much like with him is that he just wanted a drink of water. They just wanted someone to finish him off and how it just it was just so hard to die. And, and this is one where people who use guns. They this is where they have a point of contention is that how do you reach that point where you have such a serious injury and you are like, you know, have the have the attempt to make a second shot. That's the part where I, I kind of think of like, well, depending on what Priscilla uh, Grinder saw or what she heard, that that's a big factor of whether it's a suicide or if it was assassination. And certainly within the book, it seems like it's framing it towards the latter. But also from what I've seen in like from the real world history, that's kind of where I gravitate to as well. So. In history, I guess there's debate whether she gave him, where uh, Mrs. Grinder gave him water or not. Lewis colleagues writing to each other after he died are debating, like, how could somebody not give, apparently she didn't give him any water. I just wanted to point this out. Something I thought was interesting, which is definitely probably a stretch, but maybe not. But it said, uh, Lewis begged for water in the moonlight and there was no moon that night. And that's in the secret history. And it very much reminds me of this is the water, this is the well in part eight. And there's all about the moon, like the whole, like the shots of the moon. And the, and um, so there's, there's shots of the moon and talking about water. And I thought that Lewis begged for water in the moonlight and there was no moon. History says there was no moon that night. So he's playing with that mystery. What's interesting is that the this is the water, this is the well was supposedly, reportedly made up by Lynch, like on the spot. Like he, that the woodsman is supposed to just make some kind of creepy noise. I think based on something else in the secret history, I think it's that record scratch in part one. When you get to this in the secret history, the book refers to these dark men or dark entities like speaking when they spoke, it was just sounding like the, the crackling of a machine or the turning of a crank or something, something like that, something mechanical. But the, his whole, this is the water, this is the well, drink full and descend, like Lynch made that up what like when they shot it supposedly according to i think it was the actor and other people said that that, that was a like a, a script change so you've got a lynch poem kind of made up on the spot and then frost has this that's why i think it, it might be a little bit of a stretch i just think it's a cool cool connection like a moonless a moon and a begging for water under the moonlight made me think of part eight like this is the water right yeah, it definitely makes me think of the drink full and descend part uh, yeah, where it's like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think he gets that drink of water, but there's something that really coincides with the whole, he just wants a, a water before his uh, his untimely death. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The uh, One of the things about his death, though, is that, uh, and again, this is going through the secret history, but also there's conjecture about it within the historical community is that his throat and arms were slashed with a knife and or a razor. Coming back to Clay Jenkinson, I was mentioned before is that he talks about how the idea of it being a, a murder uh, was even talked about for 45 years. And he kind of just relegates the injuries that I just mentioned as just basically rhetoric. Did you find anything in your research uh, to confirm or deny it? Yeah, I didn't make specific notes personally based on the stuff that I picked through and different parts or whatever. Um, definitely read the Stephen Ambrose book. I would uh, suggest this book called Bitterroot, The Life and Death of Meriwether Lewis by Patricia Tyson Stroud. This came out in 2018. So this is, as far as I could tell, kind of like a newer uh, post-secret history, post, post a lot of the conspiracy theory books. She sources the slash wounds, neck wounds, wrist as a newspaper she cites specific newspapers that embellish the story. 
It's like Major Neely writes to Jefferson, uh, he was shot or, he, you know, he, he died of suicide. Right. And then somebody else writes a letter like, oh, he was shot in the head and the thing. But by the time it hits a newspaper, like in Kentucky or wherever, he was found with gunshot wounds to the heads and his, and his wrists slashed open. Right. So then you see in history, people like starting to reference like letters. They start writing, oh, I heard he has throat cut and his wrists. Like, I don't know what Jenkinson how he phrased it exactly. But the stuff that I've read basically dismisses the slash wounds as uh, embellishment by newspapers. And then, of course, that gets picked up even by, I want to say, one of the letters from Clark to somebody else or like even people that were close to Lewis, you know, within the next couple of years are citing this like, oh, he had, you know, he slashed his wrists as well, like stuff like that. And as far as the Stroud book is concerned, she's like, well, it was in this newspaper. This happened and this happened in this newspaper out of nowhere says, oh, his, his wrists were slashed. So I don't really put a whole lot of stock into it. And Jenkinson's probably right to dismiss it from what I've read. But the gunshot wounds seem pretty uncontroversial. This kind of leads into, because we're kind of talking about like there's bad information circulating around, is that it does make me think of the Gilbert Russell letters. Because um, initially, when Meriwether Lewis' death is reported, definitely William Clark and Thomas Jefferson, they have this like, they're shocked but not surprised type of reaction because... There was just a certain erratic nature, and I feel like the we were talking about before being a governor, it's just like an ill-fitting job. And and I know that alcohol, you know, alcohol consumption was far more 200 years ago than it is now. But even for Lewis, he was like going above and beyond it in the Gilbert Russell letters. So it's uh, one of the letters was missing for 200 years. It dated back to 1811, where Lewis apparently arrived to the fort from St. Louis and was in a quote-unquote state of mental derangement due to finances and alcoholism. The ship's captain of Fort Pickering, Lewis attempted suicide twice on his travels and again upon arrival. And then uh, Russell actually thought it would be best to incarcerate him until Lewis uh, rebounded. This does contradict a letter Russell wrote to Jefferson after his death, though, because no suicide is mentioned. He's considered thoughtful, strong-minded, and purposeful. I know that he had uh, rough patches as governor, but it does at least coincide with the core of Discovery era Meriwether Lewis. Things that Russell even referred to his death and uh, murder in that letter. Yeah, so I couldn't find anything about this new letter. I don't know if that's a Frost thing. Did you find that in history No, that's or the not? thing. I, I was on the same page with you in terms of it being a, a falsified thing because yeah. um, I couldn't find anything at all. I found exactly... You know, Captain Russell and Captain Stoddard would attest that he recovered and was in good health before leaving Nashville. Yeah. So the Russell letter that I know of is basically absolves him of all of that. Like they're like, yeah, he showed up here. He was sick, but he he's better and he's good and everything's fine. And he's going to go off to he's headed to Nashville. No big deal. So something that's interesting. So this is where like the weird, maybe real conspiracy comes in here. It's like, so Major James Neely shows up at Fort Pickering three days after Lewis was there. And then he waited 11 days. He was supposed to go to Nashville anyway, but he waited like 11 days to go with Lewis. So that's cool. Or, I mean, it's suspicious that it's like, well, if this guy shows up at this fort and he's on his way to Nashville and he has nothing to do with Meriwether Lewis, why would he show up and then stay and then like, oh, I'm going to go with this guy out of nowhere, especially if Neely was. So 
I didn't really find much about Neely being tied to Wilkinson specifically. I don't think that that was necessarily a thing. Again, he wasn't going to New Orleans because of a Wilkinson was responsible for a situation with the fever and whatnot. So here's where I kind of get into the, where I think like the, the more like conspiracy weird stuff happens. So like basically Lewis was still at Fort Pickering, which is Memphis. He was still there and recovering and feeling good. And people are writing letters like he's here, he's good. Everything's good. He's going to go on to whatever. While he was still at Fort Pickering, which is Memphis, a man named James Howe wrote from Nashville where Lewis was going. James Howe wrote from Nashville to Frederick Bates, who was maybe Lewis's, like basically a poli- another politician in St. Louis that worked with Lewis, but they were like enemies. They did not like each other at all. Okay. So you've got this random dude in Nashville writing a letter to Lewis's enemy in St. Louis already claiming Lewis was deranged and on a suicide watch while he was in Memphis. And this rumor is Bates just ran with it. He wrote like all his friends like, oh, Lewis is, you know, I think he's a great guy, but turns out he's been drinking a lot and he's mentally deranged. And it's like, so where did this stuff come from, right? You've got a healthy guy on his way to DC to talk to the president basically a soldier that's been through everything. He might not have been the greatest politician or whatever. And there was a financial thing that he was cleared up, but like there's an argument to be made that a lot of the mental derangement and that he was sick and he was on suicide watch. Like a lot of this stuff can be traced back to like letters from or to his enemies, political enemies. Right. So supposedly Frederick Bates spread this, letter around and it's a classic like when i go through the the history of it politicians haven't changed a whole lot like they'll they'll take like a piece of piece of information like i said like bates is like hey i'm his friend like i work with him and i like him okay a hundred years later we can look back and like no bates and him were like always at odds but he's writing his friends like our beloved governor lewis apparently it's a shame for me to say but he's fallen ill mental derangement of the mind you know it's like these like two-faced people so it's really hard to sort out like what angle people are coming from so there's the james howe letter to bates which is i think where a lot of the rumors these kind of things started and then of course the james neely letter which is in the secret history which is mostly correct yeah the uh he governor i'm sorry to say by suicide like that I believe is accurate. But even the James Neely letter in history, in recorded history, Neely claims that they traveled to the Chickasaw Agency, which Patricia Stroud said makes no sense because this was south. The Chickasaw Agency was south of Fort Pickering. Like they were headed northeast. So James Neely tells President Jefferson that, oh, we were at the Chickasaw Agency, that he, he at the Chickasaw Agency, he was deranged in mind like why would they have gone south days rides like south to then go northeast like it, that makes no sense so neely is kind of a and even him like i looked him up like there's there's articles out there by historians that say that the james neely that we think of is not the james like there might have been three dudes in the area with that name and it's hard to even sort out like was this really the the chickasaw indian agent that like was it was he really the guy so again like history is just this like just exhaustive like wormhole you can just keep going and going and going but 
the Russell forgery in the secret history is suspect. The uh, a lot of these rumors or a lot of the his mental derangement and his state of mind and all that stuff. It's interesting. They all pop up right around the same time that like, I mean, I haven't gone into Jenkinson too much. And so I'm kind of only coming from like one angle, like maybe there is extensive documentation of him being a drunk, but I think a lot of it is coming like right at the end of his life, like right when he's in political turmoil, right before he dies. Like I think, but I mean, again, that's just like one angle of it, right? Another interesting to know, I don't know if this is, I don't think this is in the secret history, but 30 years later after he died, Mrs. Grinder told a newspaper that there were three other men that showed up at Grinder's stand that night and he challenged them to a duel and they left in the middle of the night. They confronted him about something and then he left in the middle. Did she make it up? Did they, was that real? Some of the authors I've read believe that the reason that Grinder didn't help them and the servants didn't hear them. And basically the poor guy died alone, even if it was suicide, that they were like threatened in some way. Like, why did no one help him? Why did no one give him water? Why did no like, why did 30 years later, she's like, yeah, three dark dressed figures came in in the middle of the night asking about him. And he drew his guns and told them to, that he was going to kill him. And then they left. Like, did they come back late in the middle of the night and kill him? Right. Like, I don't know. Again, I have no horse in this or uh, I have no dog in this fight. Like I got no, I don't care. I, I have no, I'm not trying to sell one way or the other, but um, there's just, again, history, inconsistencies, people change their stories, uh, political rivals pretend to be friends and write letters, political friends pre- write letters and maybe they're being honest and people take it the wrong way. I mean, it's just, there's a million ways you can go. Uh, I did. Sorry, real quick. I did make a note about claiming his throat and wrists were cut, which we talked about. Thomas Denisi, who's another author that I read that wrote this book called uh, Uncovering the Truth About Meriwether Lewis. This is this one's uh, fairly new. I think it was 2012 or something. This is before Frost wrote The Secret History. He might have referenced this. It's very possible. I don't know. Um, but uh, Denisi's theory is that it was an accidental suicide caused by crazed malaria that maybe his malaria came back and he couldn't take it and he accidentally or on purpose shot himself basically that he didn't kill himself out of depression but he killed himself because he was intensely suffering from malaria right but then other people can doubt this like this he's had it he had it and beat it all the time he got malaria and then got over it like constantly like why would this time would, would he blow his brains out like it makes no sense right so anyway, that's basically all I got on the Russell letters and G- James Neely. And um, but again, just to say that Neely not necessarily being that trustworthy, or at least why did he wait a week to write the letter? Why did he wait a week to tell Thomas, tell Thomas Jefferson that he had died? I mean, but you never know. But th- there's doubt. All the characters in this story, their motivations can be doubted. And even, you know, Thomas Jefferson being this is one of the things that supports the idea that maybe it was suicide and maybe jefferson like honestly felt you know this is a tragic ending to a guy and jefferson talked about like oh i knew that he was kind of troubled in mind at times and you know unfortunately this kind of like consumed him and whatever but jefferson could have ordered an investigation jefferson could have uh basically Wilkinson before Wilkinson was found to be a traitor and he really got in trouble for all of that. 
he was playing both sides. So Wilkinson would go to Jefferson about stuff that Aaron Burr was doing, even though he was really on kind of the same team as Aaron Burr. But he did that to get in favor with Jefferson. So Jefferson was actually a supporter of Wilkinson for like a long period of time. So because there was shady stuff going on with Jefferson, if if Wilkinson was somehow tied to Lewis's death, would Jefferson just kind of like maybe just keep his mouth shut and let sleeping dogs lie? Because he's the guy that's basically been supporting Wilkinson the whole time. I mean, it's not set up that way in the secret history. It's very clear, very clear that, you know, Wilk, uh, Wilkinson and Aaron Burr are Illuminati and they're on one side and Jefferson and Lewis are Freemasons and they're like on the good side. But in real life, it wasn't, it was all convoluted. It was all Aaron Bird, Wilkinson, the dynamic with uh, Jefferson. Yeah, basically like Jefferson could have, Jefferson could have handled this whole thing different. Did he actually believe it? And it rang true. So he ran with it. Did he just go with it? Because that was the initial report. And he's basically one of the most powerful men in the world. And he's just, he's got to move on. Like I knew this guy, I loved him, but I guess he killed himself and that sucks. And like, you know, whatever, did he not pursue it because it would ultimately come back on him anyway for in a lot of different ways. I mean, you know, who knows? Bringing up both Wilkinson and Burr. And I know we were kind of talking about that second uh, Russell letter, like calling it a question. So this might actually muddy the waters a bit, but uh, the thing is that the first letter and again, going through the secret history, I think primarily through Tammy, is that the first letter is authenticated as Russell's handwriting. And then the second letter was deemed as forgery uh, because it came from Wilkinson's office. And it was written when Wilkinson was being uh, court-martialed for treason because of the Burr conspiracy. And later on, it was dismissed. But then uh, there's a, uh, escaped uh, two later charges. But he also it was revealed to be a double agent in 1825 and ended up being right after his death. And like I said, uh, you know, we're going through the lens of the secret history and how we can't confirm or deny that second letter. So it explains it, but also it kind of just makes it a little bit more tough because it does feel so uh, tight knit. But it's it, there's just so much about that second letter in real life where it's just kind of hard to kind of try to wrap your mind around it. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's it's too fascinating and too well crafted to be lazy. That, like I said, that it's just that that's the only other. Somebody could look at this book randomly and start reading it. Maybe not know anything about Twin Peaks. Maybe not know anything about Mark Frost. Be like, well, this is just lazy historical revisionism. Some of this stuff's correct. Some of it's not. And they're just messing with everything to just kind of like, it's like, no, man, like that's the point. (laughs) That's the point of this is that like, who can you trust? Who's who is the reader? That was something I was going to bring up in the beginning. Like the way I look at this book is kind of the way that the return is kind of underpinned with the the who is the dreamer. So this book, you've got this kind of like surface level, like who is the archivist? Okay, Tammy, you got to find out like who wrote this book, who put this all together. But it's more like the return, like visually, like the, the television show, like it's more abstracted than that because you've got recorded history compiled by a person that's compiled by another person that's being annotated by Tammy Preston. So Tammy Preston's actually the narrator, but then like the return, like who is the dreamer? Like if you fold yourself into this, right? And like take another step back and you fold yourself into it, right? Like it's really like, who is the reader, Whose lens should we be viewing this from, viewing this material through? 
And that's kind of like the return. Like, is this Cooper's like death journey? Is this us as the audience, like literally viewing this is like, does that even matter? Is this David Lynch's dream as Gordon Cole? Is Monica Bellucci the dream? You know what I mean? Like there's all these different, like, and like I'm watching Twin Peaks now and I watched it 30 years ago and like, I'm a different person and the show's different. Like, what does that mean? Like, I think that he accomplished this in this book, I think. Like, I think that's, I think that's the point. Like you said, I, there's all these little things where he's like pushing your little buttons. Like he wants you to go look this stuff up yourself, I think. And you get like, well, that's not true. I don't know. I kind of went off on a rant there, but that's my whole theory about this book. And it's like, it's right on the edge, man. It's right on the edge of, of recorded history. It's right on the edge of what people think. It's right on the edge of like common conspiracy theories. It's right on the edge, but it's just not quite there. And Twin Peaks works the same way. Like every time you think you've got some grand theory about it, like there's always a piece or two or whatever that just doesn't fit. And you just kind of have to go with it. Right. And that's, like I said, I think he's being coy when he says this doesn't have a whole lot to do with the return or, or what did he say? Like, it doesn't give too much of the return away. It's like, yeah, maybe, but like, I think it works on the same levels. I think this is Mark Frost's return. If he'd have done it, you know, all by himself, you know? Oh, yeah, that I absolutely agree with. Um, I guess the next part with Lewis's possessions, because this is where everything about the ring and uh, the trajectory goes really starts to go off, is that uh, Lewis's possessions were delivered by late November by Thomas Freeman, who was under orders from Wilkinson to Lewis's estate. No mention of weaponry or money from Fort Pickering. James Neely was found with nearly all of it, was confronted by Lewis's brother-in-law, and he only gave up the horse uh, by the end. And then a lot of Lewis's letters and journals were missing, which Lewis took from Fort Pickering, and also his cipher device to encode messages for Jefferson when he used during the core discovery. And then the pouch holding the ring was now empty. It was missing from the inventory. Lewis's Masonic apron was listed. Before we get into like the apron is that from what I've discovered is that the apron that we see in the secret history is actually different from the apron that he actually used. And uh, again, this yeah. comes back to the whole idea that Mark Frost wants you to do your research where, you know, whether it's like Tammy saying it's verified, whether there's the visual imagery, that there's more to it because the iconography on the apron in the secret history, uh, it definitely has um, what I what I at least perceive to be the eye of Horus. And I think that I forget the one that Meriwether Lewis actually had, but it definitely it, it, the the imagery was a little more subtle, for lack of a better term, compared to what we see in uh, in, in the Mark Frost book. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, I mean, that might have been the first thing I looked up when we were going to do this talk. I was like, all right, I'm going to figure this apron out. And I, I Googled it and started looking around. And yeah, you're right. Like basically this, the Masonic apron in the secret history is not an actual replica of Lewis's Masonic apron. So it's a, basically an artist rendition of it. And certain things are enhanced. And yeah, the iconography is not exactly the same. The icons and things are a lot smaller. You see in the book, uh, in the secret history book, they, you know, the, the, they go right to the edge of the apron. So you've got, you know, the art, oops, going backwards here, but the, the art goes right along the, right along to the edge of the apron. In real life, I think the icons are a lot smaller and there's a border, but in the secret history, it's stained with his blood, right? But if you Google his apron and you go, there's a big article, I can't remember who wrote it. Maybe if it's even St. Louis Lodge wrote it. There are stains on it and they do look like blood stains. 
but they're not, I guess. I don't know. But I think that maybe Frost checked out the original rape apron and went, holy crap, there's actual stains on there that look like blood stains. I'm going to work that into the story. So again, Lewis was a Freemason. He had a Masonic apron. It is, I don't know if it's on display or it's in the records of the St. Louis Lodge, the first St. Louis Lodge that he founded or helped found, but it's... Yeah, it's different. The one in the book is a is an artist rendition of it. And again, I know that since it's a different apron, there's a, there's t- taken everything else with a grain of salt. But the blood on the apron was from two unidentified individuals. And from what I recall, that this was sort of like a way to desecrate. Because uh, the thing is that like you know the Masonic Masonic aprons are incredibly sacred to the person who holds it. So I wonder if it's like just like a way to kind of like, I mean, definitely denigrate where he stood in Freemasonry or to just like taint it in some way. I wasn't sure if you had anything in mind about the two unidentified individuals and where you stand on like further detail in terms of what the blade apron would for a late Freemason. Yeah, well, um, I think that the blood of two, well, first of all, again, maybe I'll just hit some bullet points here real quick, but common criticism of the secret history is like, well, this isn't Twin Peaks. Like, what the hell is this? Like, when it came out, this came out before the return, October, you know, six months before the return came out. And everybody, me included, got it and started reading it like, what the hell is this? Like, this isn't Twin Peaks. Like, this isn't even like a, this is supposed to be the backstory of all the characters and we're Lewis and Clark and this is history. And it's like super dense and all the margins and verifying and unverifying and documents and this and that. And you're like, what the hell? But everything in this first chapter, for sure. Or not everything, but this is looking back in context of the rest of the book and the return and having a couple of years to sit on it. Like this has all the elements of a Twin Peaks mystery. And in Frost's mind, this is the first recorded Twin Peaks mystery. So you've got the chart on the elk skin, which may be the first map of Twin Peaks. Is that Hawk's map in the return, which is on an animal skin, right? The waterfalls at two mountains. There's the the white people near the falls. It may be an allusion to the lodge beings. You've got the owl cave ring. They're on a secret mission to discover the paranormal. This is like an early blue rose case. You've got the secret society, which is Freemasonry. Music in the air, UFOs, red room, electricity, uh, the silent man, the giant skeleton, an obvious reference to the fireman. Don't take the ring portal experience when they got abducted and lewis got abducted and no one seems to remember it's kind of like jackrabbit's palace where like only andy remembers you've got the clashes of lodges you've got the conspiracy theories the double agents the nemesis you got you know the mr c or moriarty is like wilkinson to uh meriwether lewis you know the double agents like jeffrey and ray monroe grinder stand is basically an inn or a hotel and they call it a lodge like grinder stand is another lodging a lodging in the woods where our beloved agent is shot like cooper shot at the great northern like a wooden lodge in the woods and our guy is shot right you got lewis's missing papers which is like laura palmer's missing diary pages and at the end, you've got who killed Meriwether Lewis, which is kind of like who killed Laura Palmer, or at least who killed who shot Dale Cooper in the lo- in in the wooden lodge in the woods, right? Like you know, the end of season one. And then finally, your bloody Masonic apron is a bloody white cloth. This is your bloody towel. This is your bloody towel from Laura Palmer in in the original Twin Peaks. So you've got two different blood stains on the thing. Like I can't remember exactly, but there's one, maybe even two other people's blood on the Laura Palmer's bloody towel. So it could just be a straight up allusion to that. It could be, like I said, like assassins, like maybe he was killed and these, there was a fight and maybe he caused them to bleed 
and he got their blood on his apron, which was said to be on his person. It wasn't right in history, but in the, in secret history, he's supposed to have this on his person. So he's got two other people's blood. So like that might be the killer's blood on this Masonic apron, which is like the bloody towel. Right. So like, it's all time and time again, mysteries. This is happening again. Right. So this is your first twin peaks mystery in the first chapter of Mark Frost's secret history. And it's got all the elements are there. That's actually a really good way to kind of wrap up the uh, core aspect of Meriwether Lewis. I guess the only thing I have left is to basically go through like a coda, if you will, because the grinders, they were charged with murder. It was subsequently dropped, but then they disappeared from Tennessee with a large sum of money. It's all allegedly, but it's like you were saying before about how she only confer- confirmed it in air quotes uh, 30 years later and how that doesn't seem to be fit right. And then Jefferson, you know, unfortunately, like, uh, you know, I think he was a little saddened about Lewis's death because he was grooming him for either to be a senator or even a presidency. And then also Jefferson assigned him to discover the white Indians and other fantastical things rumored around the Northwest. And I guess for the last part is that um, mental illness, it was unfortunately poorly comprehended in the early 19th century. In 1848, a doctor did view Lewis's body. He was stunned by its preservation, convinced that Lewis did die by the hands of an assassin. It's like you said before about uh, Grind, Mrs. Grinder, where she lied about it, and that apparently a carpenter did see the wound in the back of a skull. Uh, before I get to the final bullet points, did you see anything to confirm or deny the location of Lewis's head, head injury? Well, ag- again, it's like now that we're just in this, everything's muddy now, right? Everything's muddy. Like, I... Now I'm talking to you like I thought I kind of had an idea, but now that we've gone back and forth, I'm like, man, I don't have a clue. But I think one of the last things I read, I can't remember which book it was in, but they tried to exhume the body recently, like within the last. Well, no, actually, I don't know if it was recent or not. I think it was a few years ago. Um, I heard some about Lewis's estate and there's a I believe it's where where the body is buried, where. They don't want, I mean, they have their reasons for not wanting to dig it up, but it's kind of reaffirming anyone who they deem as conspiracy theorists of like, it's feeling all this. Yeah, uh, I believe yeah, it was Clay Jenkinson that was saying that. Okay, yeah. Like, I don't know if it's the family or the, like the parks department itself just doesn't want to set this precedent. And I, I can't remember. But yeah, like, I don't know if that's true or not. I think that might have all been made up for the book. But I, I could be wrong. Like, please, <laughs> listeners, go. For, like, was the body exhumed or examined? I don't believe that that's the case about the gunshot wound in the back of the hand, back of the head. I don't believe that that's true. But I could be totally wrong. Again, <laughs> just just want to tell your listeners, I, I did my did my best, and I think we're both doing our best here because, like, you can find someone's going to be listening to this, and they're going to be go Google and be like, "Oh, here, look, you guys are both wrong." It's like, yeah, we know, we know. Trust me, like we just. Yeah. We did, we did the best we could, but yeah, I, I read, they tried to exhume the body and they didn't want the parks department or the state or whoever didn't want to yeah set this precedent of, uh, you know, conspiracy things. I, I just, uh, ran into the same, same situation. I live close to where John Dillinger is buried. And that was a big thing recently because of a history channel documentary or something. They were trying to exhume the body and like, it's always a fight between, the family, the actual cemetery, the state, the movie producers or whoever is like pushing the thing. It's always a, a back and forth thing. And um, 
Yeah, that's all I know about that. As far as the uh, wound to the back of the skull, I feel like if that was concrete evidence, that would at least be, you know, something in a question of like, you know, I was saying before is that there's the historians and scholars where it's shouting matches for them. I feel like this would be the ultimate evidence to reaffirm that because, you know, people are talking about it with uh, Clay Jenkins where it's like, you know, shifting your... Uh, moving your hand towards you, how that would be different. But putting it to the back of your skull just seems like beyond improbable. If we have to go with it in the realm of it being in the secret history, is that Briggs, he does believe it was assassination, and Tammy generally agrees with him as well. And the thing is that, you know, we were talking about before where he's buried in a remote, seldom visit site off of uh, Notch's Trace Road. And of course, you were saying before is that Briggs was pointing out about the news article about the bones of a nine foot tall man. I don't know where that is in proximity with Meriwether Lewis's grave, but that was something that they ended on more or less with the, I guess, chapter, if you will, of Meriwether Lewis. Yeah. And this is giant skeletons. Um, you know, this is could possibly be an allusion to the the giant or the fireman. This, I believe, is mentioned earlier in the this is one of the things that that Jefferson was interested in and that Lewis was charged in like trying to we've heard of these large people so again it's all just vague kind of like peppered in there so white people by the falls and a silent man and a giant skeleton right so it's just it's trying to ignite those little things in your brain to come up with your own kind of idea about this um i did yeah come up with your own idea about it i'm into all of this <laughs> this this is like the, I've been looking forward to this for fucking months, dude. I'm just, this is awesome. That's the thing is that Meriwether Lewis was some that, uh, as we were saying before, like everyone learned about it from like fourth grade onward, but I didn't realize how interesting it really was. And it's kind of funny is that all these like facets of history, you can tell that with Mark Frost, this is some that's been in his mind for like decades. Cause he talks about how, and I think you brought this up at some point where he talks about how he didn't write the secret history till after writing season three. But at the same time, you know, this this fixation on like Meriwether Lewis, Jack Parsons, uh, uh, Richard yeah. Nixon, like this was not overnight. This was yeah, stuff this... that he's fermented for a long time. Absolutely. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. And I hope you worked that in there because that's 100 percent true. It's kind of it's kind of like a, a band. Oh, we recorded this album in six weeks. It's like, yeah, but that one guitar riff was written like 10 years ago and the singer's got a notebook full of lyrics. And it's like, you know, you know what I mean? It's like nothing ever just comes out of nowhere. He did say that the UFO section of this book was a pretty extensive deep dive. I think that he took existing interests and maybe had a framework and then he really, you know, he did absolutely did do some research. But you're right. Like this doesn't come out of nowhere. And he, it's mentioned in the, you know, the original spinoff book and. And like you said, everyone knows about Meriwether Lewis. So it's like in one way, I opened up the book and like, you're like, oh, what the hell is this? Like Meriwether Lewis. And on the other hand, it's like, oh, no, this makes perfect sense. Like these are basically the first Americans in that part of the world. And like this makes perfect sense. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So all I was going to say, just in conclusion, just so. In Twin Peaks lore, the way I look at it, uh, Lewis is the first of who I call uh, like men that walked with fire, I guess is the best way to explain it. So in the book, in the series, but you know, the book specifically, so you got Meriwether Lewis, later on you'll have Jack Parsons and, uh, you know, Philip Jeffries and then Dale Cooper. Like these are all men that have some sort of government ties. Jack Parsons less so, but like uh, you know, they're they're kind of on a mission. 
to do like regular stuff, but it's also secretly they're exploring paranormal stuff and this ultimately like consumes them, you know? So however you want to view the return, happy ending or not, or what happened to Cooper or not, like the reality is, is that Cooper was a special person that was in tune with magic or mysticism or, or, or the other otherworldly or whatever. And ultimately chasing Wyndham Earl into the Black Lodge, like he never returned or at least in the same way, right? So, uh, and Philip Jeffries even cited in The Secret History that this world was not enough for him, okay? But Meriwether Lewis and and Jack Parsons are both mentioned. They're both uh, mentioned as having the ring. These are both incredibly intelligent people that contributed a lot to society, but were ultimately consumed either, you know, by their own demons or by just the nature of of pursuing these kind of things the pursuit of the other side or whatever you know lewis quote studied physical science esoteric literature and occult subjects like alchemy this mirrors the parsons story uh this is a larger topic to explore but like lewis like we talked about lewis decides to keep the ring they're on this (laughs) raiders of the lost ark secret mission type thing and this is just like parsons with a little dash of like uh jeffries or chet desmond the people that encounter the ring Kind of like I said, like at the end of the story, Lewis, you know, diverts off course and uh, where he ultimately meets his doom. Right. So there's, there's there's echoes of Laura Palmer getting lost in the woods. There's echoes of Cooper going off into Ghostwood and then at the end of season two, basically never to return. And finally, this uh, white what they call the, the white Indian epilogue of the Meriwether Lewis story. The book says Chief Sheheke is said to have, quote, died a shattered man. And this is the first of many tragic endings throughout the secret history. This is another parallel to Cooper's fate or doom, or perhaps like a glimpse of what we were what we were in store for as an audience for the return. I think I said everything I feasibly could about Meriwether Lewis, because we explored like every fast, because even just going from the real world history to what we see in the Mark Frost books, that's right, quite a bit, but when you really try to divulge into like Freemasonry, you try to try to like go go with like how much really went into the core discovery because an eight thousand uh, Odyssey there and back, that's like that's enough to fill like uh, material for a podcast for a year. And then the, the oh, yeah. then there's the uh, conspiratorial aspect. There's there's so much about Meriwether Lewis's life that even in other podcasts I've listened to, where sometimes there's just certain parts that are just kind of like almost like a footnote because. I'm sure you've seen it where it's like if you read stuff about uh, the core discovery, it'll just be like, oh, uh, Meriwether Lewis, he either committed suicide or he was murdered. And then they just kind of leave it that. And then here's what William Clark did for the rest of his life. So, yeah, no, the thing is that uh, Mark Frost did like this was like the best starting point. You know, a lot of us probably didn't pick up on initially. In fact, I would say, you know, I certainly didn't. This really it's like you said before, it's like the first Americans in the Northwest and uh, how it's this story that raises more questions than answers in like a way that's always unique. So yeah, this was probably like the best starting point of obviously, uh, you know, for the secret history. But yeah, it's just uh, it was a really good idea on Mark Frost's part because I'm sure he knew that this wouldn't land for people initially, but people would grow to it as time went on. Yeah, let's hope so. It might be at this point one of my favorite things about Twin Peaks. It's just it's incredibly fun. And like, I don't know if I'd have met you. I don't know if I'd uh, gone down these rabbit, but like I bought a bunch of books. I borrowed like the, so <laughs> I got the, I found the unabridged or the abridged uh, National Geographic 
published at a used bookstore, like the abridged Lewis and Clark journals. But then when I really got into it, I was like, crap, these are abridged. And some of this stuff is rewritten. And some of the stuff that I'm looking for is not in here. So like I ended up borrowing my dad's 1962 edition, like unabridged, unabridged Lewis and Clark journals. So I got to give these back to the old man, but like, so I got to hang out with my dad and talk about Lewis and Clark and I borrowed these books and, you know, and like, so now I've got a couple books about his death and, and the the journals about his life. And, you know, this is going to probably be with me for the rest of my life. And I'm probably going to just be at least tangentially interested. And I'm going to ask you about the podcast you listen to. And I'm going to ask you about, you know what I mean? Like, that's the best, the best gift of Twin Peaks is just constantly being introduced to concepts and ideas and, and history and art and whatever that you can just completely go down a rabbit hole and, and uh, you know, change your life. I don't think I could have said it better myself, but yeah, I just want to thank you for coming on. Uh, this was uh, definitely a lot to go through and a lot to sink in, but yeah, I thought this was something uh, quite spectacular. Man, I, I really appreciate it. I, I can't say thank you enough. I, I, I put a lot of my own projects on hold just because when, when you approached me about this, cause I, I knew this was important early, you know, I, I was excited about it. I think that this is important. And like I said, it, this is now, well, it's interesting. Just side note, you can edit this out, but uh, like Clark is, uh, you know, I live in Indiana. So Clark was part of the Kentucky militia and he was coming up and down the Wabash river on like Indian raids and things like, so like Clark is part of my local history that I've researched on my own like 20 years ago. You know, so like my dad was into, you know, I learned about Lewis and Clark in grade school and my dad was into it when I was in high school. And then in my 20s, I'm doing history projects for college that Clark is. So it just feels like a natural evolution of what I've been into my whole life. But I wouldn't have come back to it if it wasn't for Twin Peaks and you and, you know, so I've been super excited about this for months. I really, really appreciate it. This was awesome. Together